packed the whole book into an, an hour's time or, or a half hour's time, and it just, I didn't even come close. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to preach half of the book this week, and then I'll preach the second 11 chapters next week. And then we're going to go back and take the next few months and just kind of go by verse by verse and pick up all the details. But the reason why this is very important to me, um, the reason why I want to do this so quickly is because I think it's, it's really important that uh, you get a handle on this book in general. I mean, most people are intrigued by the book of Revelation, right? I mean, I've never met a Christian that just kind of goes, eh, I don't really care about the book of Revelation. doesn't intrigue me, doesn't interest me, whatever happens, happens. Pretty rare. Most people want to know what is inside of this book. It's, it's kind of cool to learn about the end times. But most people are scared to open up the book of Revelation for themselves and study it. Because it's kind of intimidating. And I know some of you have probably started to read the book of Revelation. You read a few chapters and some of the symbolism and everything else gets you confused. And you just put it down and you say, forget about it. And a lot of people never pick up the book of Revelation again because it's so confusing. So what I want to do this week and next week is kind of simplify the book for you. Kind of give you an overview of the whole book and every chapter and what's in it so that you can pick up the pieces, so you can pick up the book yourself and read it and not be so confused. And so this week I'm going to go through the first 11 chapters of Revelation, and hopefully by the end of it you'll look at this book and it won't be so intimidating to you anymore. It won't be so confusing to you anymore. So if you don't have a Bible, under every other chair uh, there is a Bible place there. Uh, We put that there so that you can use it because there's no outline this week. We're just going to be jumping from chapter to chapter. Those in the satellite service, if you need a a Bible, raise your hand, and the ushers over there will pass one over to you. Um, But uh, if if you got a Bible, um, turn to... uh, Do we need one up here? Oh, okay. Well, uh, probably pass one over there. Turn to Revelations. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So you can just turn to the very end and just follow along with me. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And it says this. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation means revealing. Or uh, um, it's kind of like uh, the unveiling. You know how when they have a a grand unveiling they pull the curtain off of something you're like wow look at you know you finally get to see it that's kind of what revelation is about it's like this revealing of jesus christ that's why this book is so important and i think it's imperative that every christian understands the book of revelation because without it you have a very shallow view of jesus christ you don't get the whole picture you don't get to see him in all of his glory and what it's going to be like when he returns that's what Revelation does. It's this, it's this, this revealing, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, of his character and who he is and what it's going to be like when he returns to the earth. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's us, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, or take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So understand, 
how we got this book is by John. Remember John? He was one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And uh, he's the one that, that was often called the beloved disciple. And John gets a vision. He, gets, he hears these words from an angel. His angel gives him these words. And, uh, and, and now that we have him, he says, Blessed is he who hears it, who reads it, and takes it to heart. Now look at verse 9. This, this describes how he got this letter. Verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, so he says, okay, here I am. He goes, John, he goes, I'm your brother, I'm your companion. He goes, and I'm on this island called Patmos. Why is John on this island, Patmos? Well, remember there are 12 disciples. And after Jesus, you know, ascends back into heaven, they go out and they start sharing their faith. Okay, Judas had already died because he hung himself, remember that? And now you've got these other 11 disciples. They're preaching about Jesus everywhere because that's what Jesus told them to do. Well, the Roman government didn't like that. And they, they sought to kill anyone that preached Jesus Christ. So what happened to all the disciples is that what church history and tradition tells us is that all of these disciples were martyred in one form or another. Um, whether they were crucified upside down, some of them were beheaded, you know, stoned. They, they were all killed except for John. John was the only disciple that we know of that was not martyred. Instead, though, what they did with John was they took him and they put him on this island called Patmos. It's kind of like an island that, that was for exiled people. So that they were kind of uh, just kept separated from everyone else. So he wasn't martyred. He was just put on this island so that he couldn't go witness and tell other people about Jesus. And so John says, here I am on this island of Patmos. And he says, on the Lord's day, you know, in verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. So maybe he was praying or worshiping or something. Um, and he says, and I hear this voice behind me like a trumpet. And he says, you know what? Just write down what I'm about to tell you and then send it to these seven churches. Okay, so this is how we get it. It's this voice John hears. He's on his island. He hears his voice. He says, write down what I'm about to say and then send it to these seven churches. These seven churches are literal churches. It'd be like if someone said, hey, send, send one to the church in, uh, you know, Anaheim, you know, send one to uh, one in North Hollywood, you know, these specific churches send them this message that I'm about to give you. And so these seven churches back then, they existed in Asia Minor, which is a modern-day Turkey in that area. And so they're the first ones to get the book of Revelation. Okay, so John hears this voice. He's about to write, but he turns around to look at who's talking to him. And in verse 17, look at what happens. Verse 17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Okay, so John turns around to look at who's talking right now and telling him to write the stuff down. He says, when he gets a glimpse of this person, he is so horrified, so in shock by his appearance, he says, it's like all the life came out of him and he just fainted. He fell over like a dead man. So who is this being that John saw? It explains. It goes on in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said... Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Who's that? 
It's Jesus. It's Jesus himself that John sees. And we know it because look at verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Okay, that gives you a clue. You know, who else died and is, is alive forever and ever? And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. And look at 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. This is a very important verse. Verse 19 outlines the whole book of Revelation. He says, write on a scroll what you have seen. Okay, what did he just see? This vision of Christ. He goes, and then write down what is now. He's, and in chapters 2 and 3, what John does is he writes to those seven churches things that pertain to their time. He goes, then I want you to write the things that are about to take place. And that's what chapter 4 through chapter 22 is all about. The things of the future. And that's the bulk of Revelation is this prophecy about what's going to happen in the end times. What's going to happen in the future. Okay, so you got that? Are you following me so far? So John's on this island. He hears a voice. It's Jesus. Jesus says, write this stuff down that I'm about to tell you. I'm going to tell you about things that you already saw, things that are taking place now, and things that are going to take place in the future. So chapter 1 was what he saw. Chapters 2 and 3, these are uh, chapters 2 and 3. You can turn to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2 begins these letters to the churches that were in existence, to these seven churches. Jesus Christ had a message to each of these seven churches, and that's what chapters 2 and 3 are, are just letters. And, and for example, look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Okay, understand, Ephesus is a city, and there's, there's one Christian church there, and he says, you know what, tell the angel there. And you're thinking, angel? The word angel can mean angel, like an angelic being. It can also mean messenger. Okay, so most people interpret this to say, okay, the messenger there in the church in Ephesus, or the pastor there, the one who speaks for God. Okay, so, so the pastor can be interchangeable with angel. So I'm, I'm like an angel. He, uh, so he says, you know, tell the pastor over there in Ephesus, I've got some things to tell that church. And then here's what he says in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So Jesus says to that church in Ephesus through their pastor, he says, you know what, this is, what, this is the message to you. You guys are doing a lot of good things. You're doing a lot of good works. You're teaching all the right stuff. He goes, but I got something against you. There's something about this church that bothers me. This is God speaking. He says, you've lost your first love. It's like you've grown cold in your faith. It's like you used to love me. You used to love people. But now you're still teaching all the right stuff. It's just that the love's gone. And he says, go back to that old love. You ever been to a church like that? Where it's like, you know what? They're teaching all the right stuff. They're doing all the right stuff. But... It seems like there's no love in the place. No one genuinely loves God. No one genuinely loves each other. That was his message to that church there in Ephesus. And so chapters 2 and 3 are just a bunch of letters like that to several different churches that are all struggling with different things. So then we go to chapter 4. Chapter 4 now starts getting into the future. And before I get into it, let me say this. A lot of people believe that that as we start talking about these future events from chapter 4 on, a lot of people believe that the rapture, have you heard of that term rapture? It's the time when God will take all the believers from the earth. 
a lot of people believe that the rapture takes place before we get to chapter 4. Okay, that all the believers on earth are somehow mysteriously taken up into heaven by the power of God. That's what that book series Left Behind is, is all about, you know, the movie that just came out. But it's a whole idea that all the Christians on the earth will be taken up to heaven before this end time occurrence takes place. So that means any day before this stuff happens. Um, and the reason why some people espouse to that is because in chapters 2 and 3, he's talking to churches, but then from chapters 4 all the way to the end, he doesn't even mention the church. A lot of people say, well, maybe because the church is already gone by that time and he's already taken them up into heaven. Because chapter 4 gives us a glimpse of heaven. And look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I had heard, first speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That's another reason why people say, well, what's, what do you mean after this? What's after this? Well, maybe after the church age, after, you know, this age that we live in with all the churches existing, then he gets to see something else, and John gets to look into heaven. And look at verse 2. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. Okay, this is kind of weird stuff. John now gets this vision of heaven, and he gets to see God. Okay, and this is what he sees. He sees God. He's sitting on a throne. He's trying to describe him. He goes, gosh, he goes, it's like stones, like emeralds, like jasper, like all these different precious stones. It's just God on his throne. And he says, and around his throne were these 24 other thrones. And these elders sat on these 24 thrones. What are those 24 thrones and those 24 elders? I believe it represents the church. I can't get into it right now, for now. Uh, just trust me, because I'm usually right. Um, and uh, <laughs> we'll get into more in the weeks to come. But, but for now, you, you've got this vision of heaven. John, this, all you need to know about chapter 4 for now is, okay, he sees God on his throne and all these other thrones around him, and everyone's worshiping this God. Okay, then go to chapter 5, verse 1. 5.1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay, He's looking at God on his throne and he sees that he is holding a scroll in his right hand. Okay, If this were a scroll, he says that scroll was sealed with seven seals. Okay, what they used to do on the official documents of Roman government you know, or title deeds to property or whatever, they, they would seal these scrolls. And how they would seal a scroll is this. They would put a piece of wax right here where the paper is going to come apart right there. They would put a piece of wax that holds it together. And then a person with a, a signet ring would kind of push his insignia on that piece of wax. And they went hard and it would be sealed. Now, you were not allowed to open that scroll unless you show that you've got the ring or whatever type of stamp that fits into that wax seal. And so the Roman government could tell if someone had tampered with their documents because that seal would fall apart. And they were not allowed to open it until they could show that signet ring. Now, it says that there are seven seals. And what, what that means is, okay, here's the seal in the, in the beginning. You open it and you roll it up, unroll it a little bit, and you'll see there's another scroll, another seal. 
and you have to show the ring again. Okay, I can open this part too. Um, so basically, you open a seal and you can read for the first one-seventh of the document. And then you need the next seal and to show that you have uh, authority to open the next part, the next part, the next part. You got that? So, so God's holding a, a uh, what is it? Scroll, thank you. A, a scroll in his hand and it's got these seven seals on it. Okay, you got that picture now? John is looking up. He's seeing God holding the scroll. In verse 2 of, of Revelation 5, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, you got that picture? God's holding the scroll. He's got the seven seals. And everyone's going, Oh, man, I want to see what's inside because this scroll unlocks this future mystery of how the world's going to end. And everyone's like, Gosh, I want to see it. I want to see it. But no one can open it. John is so devastated. It says he's crying. So one of the elders says, wait, here comes someone who can open it. Here comes Jesus. And Jesus now opens up the scroll in chapter 6. Okay, so chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. So he's reading that first part of it. And look at verse 2. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Okay, this is about the point where everyone puts down the book of Revelation and says, I don't get it. Okay, so he opens up a seal, and he sees a horse. Big deal. What am I supposed to take from that? Okay, this is, what, this, this is describing the beginning of this end-time period. The first thing that's going to happen is represented by this rider on a white horse. And uh, this, this, this rider on a white horse, he has a, he has a crown. So somehow he is a ruler. He also has a bow. It doesn't mention any arrows, but he has a bow. And so many have said that this seems like some sort of ruler who rules the world, not, with, not by making a war and taking it over, but somehow by b- bringing peace upon the earth. Okay, and let me explain why we get this. Okay. Turn back in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Um, in, in fact, if you have one of these paper Bibles, it's on page 624. That helps. You know, it's kind of cheating. But uh, Daniel 9. I've talked about this prophecy before in the Old Testament. This is the prophecy, remember, of the 70 weeks or the 77-year periods? And I talked to you about the 69 weeks and how it all calculates out. You know, from the time it was written to the very point when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Pretty amazing stuff. Well, at the end of the prophecy, it talks about another seven-week period. And that's what it's described in, in Revelation. But look at Daniel 9, verse 27. Daniel 9, 27 says this. He will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven, or one seven-year period. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. 
until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, go back to the beginning of the verse. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven-year period. Okay, so it seems like someone is going to come along and make some sort of covenant or some sort of seven-year peace treaty with the world or with many people. And yet in the middle of that seven-year period, it says, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Where do the sacrifices take place? In the temple, in the temple there in Jerusalem. Okay, and it says, but in the middle of the seven years, he's going to stop the, the sacrifices. Now, there's no temple in Jerusalem right now, is there? No, it's just the Dome of the Rock. And the Jews have wanted there to be a temple there, but you've got the Arabs there. There's been this fighting that's been going on there for centuries now. And right now, it's amazing that in our day and age, I mean, it's, it's heating up again. Now, what is going to happen, what appears will happen is someone is going to come alongside and bring peace to that situation. You know how Clinton tried to come alongside the two leaders and bring peace and he didn't really do it? Okay, someone is going to come alongside and bring peace to where somehow the temple can be rebuilt. It seems like the two will be able to coincide together. That's our best guess. It seems like that's what's going to happen because he says that sacrifices are going to be taking place until the middle of that seven years or three and a half years into it, then he's going to break the covenant. And then there's, he's going to set up something in the temple, it says there in Daniel 9. So the temple's got to be there, and he's got to set up some sort of statue there, which is the Antichrist kingdom, which we'll talk about next week. But uh, that's what's going to start the war. So is that giving you a little bit of picture? This is the Old Testament now talking about someone coming and bringing peace. That's why. That's why we go to Revelation 6, And that first seal that is broken, that means the first thing that's going to happen is this guy that's been talked about in Daniel, now talked about in Revelation, is going to bring peace to the Middle East. He's going to bring peace, and the whole world's going to follow him because how in the world did he bring peace? He must be an incredible leader. But then keep reading in Revelation 6. So that's the first seal. Is Someone's going to come along, and we may be gone from this earth by then, or we may experience it, depending on what view you hold. Um... But then verse 3 of Revelation 6, it says, When the Lamb opened the second seal, okay, now he opens the second part of it. I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make men slay each other. Okay? That's why we believe, okay, that three and a half years of peace is put to an end and now there's war. Just like Daniel said in the Old Testament, now you're seeing it in in Revelation. It seems like someone's going to come along, bring peace, then after three and a half years, the next thing that happens, someone else comes along, or maybe it's the same guy, but now there's going to be war. Just like uh, like Daniel prophesied. Now it goes on. In verse 5, it says, The Lamb opened the third seal, and I heard the living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And when I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. What on earth is that? This guy comes along, the third seal, he sees this vision of a guy on a black horse, and he's holding scales, you know, scales where where you, you weigh things. And the guy is screaming, he says, a quart of wheat 
for a day's wages. A quart of wheat isn't enough for a meal for one guy. So he's saying, you know what, you could work a whole day and your wages would not give you enough to pay for one meal. Basically, it's famine conditions. He's saying that after, after there's peace, then there comes war, and then what often follows war is famine. Okay, so that's what happens next. Then he goes on in the fourth seal, verse 7. When I opened the fourth seal, look at verse 8. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, so the fourth thing that happens, he says he sees this pale horse, and the rider's name is Death, and it says that he's given power to kill a fourth of mankind through the war, through the famine, and through plague. So it's kind of just a natural progression. I mean, you imagine, you've got peace, and then you have a war, and with war comes the famine, and then famine comes some plague. And he says, you know what? By that time, a fourth of mankind is dead. A fourth of the population has died by these wars, by this famine, and by these plagues. And then you get to the fifth seal in verse 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So he opens the fifth seal and he gets a glimpse into heaven again. And this time he sees it's, it's all the Christians who died during the tribulation, who were martyred. Okay, because that Antichrist or that leader, we call the Antichrist, who is going to set up his kingdom is going to make it illegal for anyone to worship God, like it is in some countries already. Um, he says, it's illegal to worship Jesus Christ. I want you to worship me. And so he puts to death anyone who proclaims the name of Jesus. And so in this fifth seal, John gets a glimpse of heaven and all these martyred saints who are crying out to God and saying, God, when are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to go down to the earth and destroy these people for what they have done to us? And that's where we start the sixth seal. And this is where it gets really eerie. Look at verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Okay, so he breaks open that sixth seal, and this is where it gets scary. I mean, not that the other stuff is normal, but uh, the sixth seal, and he says that, he says, I saw like stars falling from heaven. Maybe these were meteors or whatever just hitting the earth. He says, uh, he goes, it was like the sun turned black. The moon turned like this reddish color. And he's just seeing this massive destruction. He says, like the sky falling down on the earth. It's like when you shake a fig tree when it's ripe and everything's just falling down. He says, that's what it feels like, all these objects hitting the earth. It's getting destroyed. 
And it says it's getting so horrible that it didn't matter because the princes, the kings, everyone was just running and wishing that the rocks and the mountains would fall on them and kill them because they were so terrified by the wrath of God that was finally being poured out on the earth. It's pretty terrifying as he's opening up and explaining what goes on in the end times. So then we go to chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is interesting, okay? Because you, you'd be, don't get confused here. Chapter 7, what he does is he's just described some of the end time events. Now in chapter 7, he goes back and he fills in a few details. Kind of like what I'm doing this morning. You know how I'm kind of just kind of flying through the book? And then I'm going to go back in the weeks to come and we'll go into the details and talk about all this stuff. This is what he does in chapter 7. He explains something that was left out. Chapter 7, uh, verse 2. He goes, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, see what's going on here? He says, before all this devastation comes, one of the angels cries out, wait a second, before we pour out all this wrath on the earth, first, let's, let's seal those who serve God. And it says that there were 144,000 that they sealed on their foreheads somehow. So that the angels would know not to harm them. These people are protected by God because they love Jesus Christ. And yet it says that there are 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. So these are Jewish people. So somehow in the midst of the tribulation, there will be 144,000 Jewish people who give their lives to Jesus, who decide to follow Jesus. And the Bible says that they will be protected during this calamity. Now, it's interesting because remember when we studied the Old Testament, God always said that he was going to protect the Jewish nation. Remember he said there will be times when they'll just barely be hanging on by a thread. He goes, but no one will be able to destroy that nation. And he says there will always be a remnant. There will always be a remnant of true believers amongst the Jewish people. Here is the fulfillment of that. Here in the very end, here is the remnant, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe that is sealed by God. And uh, it goes on in, in, uh, in verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So it's beyond 144,000. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Okay, so now John sees a vision of people beyond the 144,000 because they're from every tribe, every nation, everything else. And they're before God worshiping Him. And look at verse 13, and we find out who those people are. Verse 13, one of the elders asked me, because John speaking, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? You know, I mean, the elder's asking John. That's kind of weird. So John responds in verse 14. He, he says, I answered, sir, you know, you live here. You know, I, you know, you know, I mean, you're the one. You've got to tell me. You tell me who these guys are. And he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Okay, it seems like, okay, I say seems like, this seems like these are people that are in the tribulation who after they begin to see some of the events, they realize the Bible really is true. This whole revelation thing really is 
how the world's going to end. I'm going to believe in him now. That's what it appears to be. These people are saved during that time. Because you read on in verse 14, it says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Remember, uh, if they were in the tribulation period, they would experience the famine. And so he says, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, which is another one of the curses, which I'll show you later. Nor any scorching heat. Verse 17. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, so these are the people who endured some of that tribulation. And it seems like at the end, you get a picture of them before God. And God wipes every tear from their eyes and said, you know what? You went through so much pain, but now you're in heaven with me. You will never experience pain again. Now let's go to chapter 8, verse 1. And here finally is the seventh seal. Remember, Jesus has been opening the scroll. And we've, we've seen so many things happen. Now he finally gets to the very end, the seventh seal, and that's chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Okay, so he opens the seventh seal, and everything is totally quiet for a half an hour. Now, some scholars have pointed to this verse to prove that there are no women in heaven. Okay? <laughs> But that's, that's not really the point here. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, what is this silence? Why is it silent for half an hour? How do they, why is it quiet now for half an hour? What it is, is this. Okay, Jesus has been opening this scroll, and the things are pretty amazing. It's pretty devastating. But when he opens the final part of it, and everyone gets to kind of see what's there, it is so awesome, so terrifying, that... There's just kind of a hush. Up until then, everybody's been worshiping and saying, oh, God, praise God, praise God. And then he opens the seventh seal and it's like, whoa. This is horrifying what he's about to see. What is it? Verse 2. I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Okay, so what is that seventh seal? It's these seven angels lined up. And each one of them has a trumpet. And then look what happens in verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. A third of the green grass was burned up. Okay, so the first angel blows his trumpet. And John says, I saw like, you know, it's it's like hail, fire, um, blood. It's just some sort of mixture coming down to the earth that burns up a third of the vegetation. Then he says in verse 8, the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay, so the second angel blows his trumpet, and John says, I see like this huge mountain that's just on fire, and it, it just looks like it falls into the ocean, and it turns the ocean into blood. Um, he says it's like a third of the ocean, so it's probably like, you know, maybe the Pacific Ocean or something like that. You just see this huge thing just come down on it and destroy the whole ocean, destroy all the, all the animals there, destroy anyone that was on a boat that was out there. It's all gone. Then he goes on in, in verse 10. It says, I, the third angel sounds his trumpet, and a great star 
blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Okay, so the third angel blows his trumpet, a star falls on the rivers and the, you know, the streams and all the drinking water and turns it bitter, a third of it, so that if anyone drinks it, he could die from it. Then verse 12, a fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Okay, so the fourth one, something catastrophic is happening now. The sun, like a third of it, is blacked out. A third of the moon's blacked out, and it kind of has an effect on the stars, and a third of those are blacked out. He says it's to the point where, you know how right now the world system, the world is just working so perfectly as far as the earth and how it spins around the sun and the stars and everything else, just amazing. He says it's not going to be like that. God is going to pour out his wrath on on the creation. Um, And the sun now is turning black. The moon's turning black. The stars, some of them are gone now. And then look at verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So after those four trumpets, he sees an, an eagle flying by going, Wait till you see the last three. You thought this was bad. Wait till you see what happens next. Revelation 9, verse 1. It says, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, And I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. What is the abyss? The abyss is like a dungeon in the depths of hell where demons have been bound up. And it says that this star is given the key to open it up. Now understand, when you hear the word star in Scripture, sometimes it it refers to the stars in the sky, but sometimes the word star can also refer to angels or angelic beings. Okay, in this case, I believe is an angelic being. I think it's fairly obvious because because he's given a key. It's hard to imagine a star coming down here. I got a key. Uh, you know, it just it just doesn't seem like that. It it appears to be Satan coming down, the fallen angel coming down, and he unlocks this this dungeon in hell. And in verse three, it says, "Out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth." and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Pretty freaky stuff. It's like these demonic, locust-like beings go around and they sting mankind. Not people who've been sealed by the seal of God, but everyone else. And it tortures them for five months straight, but they, they can't die. They just have to endure the pain. Verse 13, then the sixth angel sounds his trumpet. And listen to this one. Verse 14, it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 
200 million, I heard their number. What is the sixth trumpet? He says, at the sixth trumpet, and understand the geographical location, he says, at the river Euphrates, there have been these four demonic-type angels who were bound there. And at this point, God releases them and says, okay, now you can release this army that's been bound up at the river Euphrates. Okay, where is that? That's over by Asia. Okay, and it says, at that point, God releases this army. These angels release the army to go out and kill a third of the world. Okay, so much of the world's already dead. So at this point, I mean, we're talking half mankind's already gone. This, this, this army goes and wipes out a third of the people that are alive still. Now, people have questioned, is this a demonic army or are these actual people? I believe it's actual people. I mean, you can take it literally as 200 million mounted troops. And the interesting thing is this. Back in the 80s, around 1988, Time Magazine wrote an article. And in that article in Time Magazine, it says the number of troops... In Red China, the Red Chinese army now numbers over 200 million. Okay, coincidence? Maybe. But just, just kind of amazing things that are going on. So uh, look at verse 20 now. It says, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood idols, They cannot see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so the people that are left on the earth, they still don't finally bow down to God. Instead, they go back to their sin, and you go, well, that can't happen. Absolutely it would happen, because look at the arrogance of man in the day and age in which we live. What happens when something horrible happens? Do they come before God and humble themselves? No. What do they say? God... How could you let that happen? How can there be a loving God in heaven if that just happened? How, how, can my mom, how can my mom have died if there's a loving God in heaven? What do you think is going to happen when the world is starting to get destroyed? What are people going to do? Look up in heaven and say, okay, God, now I'll humble myself? No, they're going to go, God, if you just killed my whole family, I'm not going to worship you. And they'll shake their fist at God. And they'll go right back to their sin. They'll say, there must not be a God if all this stuff is happening, not realizing this was all written, it was going to happen. So we go on to chapter 10. Before we go to chapter 10, we're going to take an offering, but we're not going to sing or anything like that. They're just going to offer while I'm talking because we're out of time. Um, so I just come on, take an offering, and I'm just going to talk while... Is this okay? I mean, I don't know if that's a sin to not have special music during offering. But, uh, but uh, we're going to... We're just, you know, so I'm just going to keep talking. Um, so just keep reading along. First, write your check. Make it a big one. Throw it in the... Um, offering, and then uh, I'm going to keep reading, okay, because we're almost done. We've got two chapters in about three minutes. Listen to this. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Verse 2, he was holding a little scroll. Okay, verse 3 is very interesting. He gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Kind of weird, huh? Because uh, John hears these thunderous voices and he's about to write down because he was told, write everything down. But a voice from heaven says, no, no, no. This I don't want you to write down. 
I don't want you to write down what these guys just said. Why? I don't know. It's a mystery. It's one of those mysteries. We don't know this about the end times. What is this that he's talking about? But go to verse 9. This is kind of a weird verse, too. He says, So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. What is that? So John goes to the angel and goes, Hey, can I have that little scroll? The angel goes, all right, but you got to eat it. You know, so what is that? And, uh, and it says that John eats this little scroll, and it's sweet in his mouth, but in his stomach it turns sour or bitter. I believe this little scroll, it seems to just symbolize the bigger scroll and everything that's going on, because it's like there's a sweetness to all of this, isn't it? Because you realize, man, this is when Christ, I'm so sick of the sin and all the you know, persecution on this earth for Christians, and it's like, Finally, Christ is going to take over the world. This is awesome. But the more you read, it kind of makes you sick to your stomach, too, because you realize the devastation that's going to take place at this time. You go, wow, this is really horrible. And so that little scroll just represents the bigger scroll where John's saying, man, this is good stuff, and yet it's horrible stuff. And then we go to verse chapter 11. This is the last one we're going to look at today. Chapter 11 is, again, going back to, uh, you know, kind of giving you another overview of some details that were left out over these first six or seven, uh, the the seven seals and the the trumpets and all. Look at verse 3, something that's going to take place. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Guys, what's 1,260 days? Three and a half years. Okay, remember how I talked about how it's a seven-year period broken up into these three-and-a-half-year periods. Okay, so I believe this is during the first half of the tribulation when there is peace and everything else, that there are going to be these two witnesses on the earth. And the reason why it's 1260 is because the Hebrew calendar has 360 days in it. Okay, so if you calculate it all, 1260 days is three-and-a-half years. These two witnesses are going to be telling people about the truth. They are witnesses for God. I believe that's how the 144,000 Jews come to believe, possibly, is through these two witnesses. God has a witness on this earth. Now look at verse 5. It talks about these witnesses. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Okay, so these are unique people, okay, to say the least. God gives them this power and John's just describing this. He goes, this is what it looked like. It's like they'd open their mouths and fire would come out and, and just destroy anyone that tried to harm them. But, but keep reading. Look at verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That, that's Jerusalem. Okay, so, so Satan's given power to kill these two witnesses. But look at verse uh, 9. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. So it says these guys, they just leave them on the street, these two dead witnesses. And it says everyone in the world will see them from every nation. How can we accomplish that? Television. It's broadcast. You know, this this is stuff that can only be happening now. Everyone in the world is seeing these two lying on the street. And then look at verse 10. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. Okay? The world gets so arrogant, they're going, look, we killed the two witnesses. These guys, they, they looked at them as evil, 
because they were against the Antichrist, who was really the evil one, and they're gloating over them to the point where they're sending each other gifts because they're going, all right, this guy, they, we killed him. Here's a fruitcake. You know, uh, it's amazing. Just the arrogance. Look, we won, we won, we beat God or, or, or whoever this is that sent these, these two witnesses. And look at verse 11, though. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. No, duh. You know, I mean, these guys are back to life, and everyone's like, oh, here's your fruitcake back. You know, uh, they're back to life, and God takes them into heaven. There's an earthquake. Okay, look at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Okay, the last trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Okay, so with the seventh trumpet comes the actual return of Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about next week. Very important, okay? This is, this is signifying the very end when Jesus Christ actually returns now, after the plagues, after the wrath, after all that stuff, Jesus Christ returns. We're going to get into it next week. But real important because in chapter 12 and 13, which we're, where we'll start next week, we go back. Okay, so far we have seen everything that has taken place from God's perspective and what the angels are doing. But 12 and 13 are awesome chapters because they go back and explain what Satan is doing during this whole time. And that's where in chapter 13 we start talking about the Antichrist. You know, the mark of the beast and the one world government, one world currency. We can go all the way to the end until we get to heaven. Okay, but that's next week, so make sure you don't miss that. But speaking of Antichrist, make sure you go out and vote this week. Okay? Um, <laughs> you guys, honestly, as Christians, I mean, it is so important. And I, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm not going to push you one way. Push you. Did I say vote? <laughs> I'm not going to. I did not say that. I'm not going to push you one way or the other, but I am just saying, you know what? What we, are, what we are called to do as Christians is not, you know, say this guy, that guy, this initiative, that initiative, or whatever else. But I believe God has called us to use our own wisdom, you know, and this, this book, you know, God's Word, and, and use that to guide us in how to vote. And so I would really encourage you guys to do that this week. Go out to the polls and make sure you make your voice known. Let, let me pray for us. Father, I... I, I thank you for this book of Revelation, God. I am terrified by it. Um, yet at the same time, Lord, I get so sick of the sin on this earth and people who mock Christians and make fun of our morality and make fun of your morality and, and make fun of you. And God, so in a sense, I look forward to that day when you return and make everything right. And yet, God, there's this bitter, sick feeling in our stomach when we realize how you're going to do it. And it's terrifying. But God, I pray that today... you. You have opened our eyes to the book of Revelation so that we don't feel it up and not ever read it. I pray that you've opened our eyes so that we can understand it. And I pray for everyone in this room that as we go in this study of Revelation, that it will open our eyes to many things um, and really reveal to us who you are. Because, God, you all that matters is you. You're in control of everything. You're in control of the end. And so, God, help us to worship you this week with fear and trembling. Let us be in awe of who you are. And God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ and the fact that we are sealed, your word says, by the Holy Spirit of God to show that we are yours, protected, your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.